We've been doing a series over the last few months. It's been called Being Church. And we've looked, a number of us have spoken during the series, we've looked at what it means to be the kind of church that Jesus intended. And so we began by looking at being a worshiping church, being a naturally supernatural church, welcoming and accepting, praying, outward-looking, city-influencing, serving, sending, compassionate, and Bible-loving. And we've talked about different aspects, aspects of what we do here together, and there'll be certain things perhaps that you personally have loved through that series. You, you're in this church, you think, oh, I love the compassion ministry, I love the actual getting involved in doing that, or I love the outward-looking stuff where I can get out and do stuff on the streets and pray for people. Or perhaps it's more worship that really lights your fire. Or perhaps it's an emphasis on prayer or going deeper with God in Bible study. Let me just ask you this question. What was it that first drew you when you came here to this church? What was it the first thing that attracted to you? And then what is it that keeps you coming back? I'm sure the Donuts and muffins and chocolates in the break can, uh, they may be helpful, but there's only a limited incentive there for a limited period of time. I'm sure there's gonna be more than that. And I'm sure there are many different things that bring people to this church. Perhaps you came because a friend invited you, came to a Sunday service. Or maybe you came through the Arches Ministry or an, an event like an Alpha Course and you gradually found your way in and became a part of us. Others perhaps simply saw our building and wandered in, perhaps driving by, saw a warehouse with the word vineyard on the front and thought, ah, discount wine, I'll drive in there. And before you knew it, you walked into a room full of people singing songs or whatever it was. Whatever brought you in, I suspect that the reason you're still here is essentially, whether you've actually analyzed it or not, essentially down to one thing, or more accurately, one person, the person of Jesus. Underneath everything that we do as a church, it's his presence which permeates everything that we do. It sustains everything that we do. And it's my hope that if you're on a journey of faith, you will eventually discover for yourself, like so many of us here have, that a relationship with Jesus Christ eclipses everything else. Now, as we draw this series to a close today, I thought it was fitting to spend our time focusing on Jesus and how we as a church relate to him. Some of you may be asking the question, well, who is Jesus and why is he so utterly amazing? And just to reiterate what Susie just waved at you, this booklet here, Why Jesus? If you've never read it, I really would encourage you to. And that applies to you if you're exploring faith and just thinking, who's Jesus and why? But also, you know, if you've never read this, even if you've been a believer for a long time, I really would encourage you, pick one up. We give away, I think it's a couple of thousand of these a year, mainly to people exploring faith. But if you would like to take it and read it, I think it will refresh you in your faith as you realize that Jesus is absolutely amazing. Now, the Bible gives us a number of pictures of really, which illustrate the relationship that Jesus has with his church. For instance, the church is often referred to in the Bible as the body of Christ. We read this in 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. We're collectively Jesus' body. Jesus himself, his resurrection body, is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. His body, the body of Christ on this earth right now is made up of each of us and indeed another couple of billion people across the face of the earth. 
We are his hands, we're his feet. And a body needs a head, otherwise it's not gonna function very well. And uh, we read in a few places that Jesus is the head of the body. So in Colossians 1.15, Paul talks about the Son, the Son of God, Jesus. In him, all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. In the next chapter of that same letter, Paul again mentions the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. In his letter to the Ephesian church, he writes about him who is the head, that is Christ, and from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So Jesus is the head of the church, and connected to him, the church grows. And you see the two nuances there. It grows as God causes it to grow in the Colossian text, and it grows as it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So you've got this, this uh, cooperation, this co-mission that we work on together. God causes it to grow. Without him, nothing would happen, but it also grows and is healthy as we do our part, play our part in building the church. Now, body is made up of different members, uh, different parts, and it's just like this with the church, which is one of the, the ways in which actually the church is so different to almost every other organization or group of people. If you think about any group, large or small, in society, there is a tendency for them to have easily identifiable similarities. People tend to spend time with people who are a bit like them. So if you went to your golf club, you'd probably find people there who not only share a love of golf in common, but quite likely the majority there would have somewhat similar backgrounds and lifestyles. If you think about your own friends, you'll probably find that many of them are like you in some way. If you go to the Market Square on a Saturday, you will see groups of young people around the Market Square, and often, as well as their ages that they have in common, there'll be little groups who dress in different ways to other groups. And so you may be familiar with these kinds of groups. This will be skaters, and then you've got some goths and some, some others. There'll be groups around the Market Square, people who dress the same. And uh, when I was young, if you're as old as me, you remember mods and rockers, punks, skinheads, and if you really are as old as me, you remember New Romantics. We're talking 1981, Adamant, Gary Newman, the, the Human League lived down the road. Don't you want me, baby? They lived down the road when that hit came out from me in Sheffield when I was a student. So I was an art student. And this morning, I made the mistake of admitting that when going out for an evening, I would often wear mascara and eyeliner. And... Um, I was asked whether I actually had a photograph of me at that time, and embarrassingly, I do. Um, <laughs> I didn't think, though, that you'd be interested in, in... Okay. So this was me in 1981. <laughs> I hope you haven't lost all confidence in me as your pastor. People have always gathered around in groups uh, around a certain dress style or a certain musical, common music style. And uh, birds of a feather tend to flock together. 
But the church is different, or at least it's supposed to be. When the church began 2,000 years ago, it was made up of different people. They came together with a common faith in Jesus, but it was with great diversity. I'm just going to refer to one little paragraph here in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, which describes for us the leadership team at the church in Antioch. And this is what it says in Acts 13, verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were together, they were fasting and praying. Then they sent off Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And so in this Antioch leadership team, when you just read those names, you think, well, who are they? I have no idea. But the diversity there, Barnabas is a Jewish Levite from Cyprus. Levites were a distinct group or tribe who assisted the temple priests with certain important jobs that made it possible for the Jewish people to worship God in certain prescribed ways. Then we have Simeon called Niger. Niger was a way of saying black. So Simeon is presumably a black African. Then we have Lucius, a Roman from North Africa. And Manian, be fascinating to meet him in heaven. He was brought up with, and the text could mean he was the foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch, the same Herod that put John the Baptist to death and who participated in the trial of Jesus. And finally, you have Saul, who was a Pharisee, fastidiously studying the law. He probably knew the first five books of the Bible backwards, not just forwards, but backwards in his training. And so you've got this multiracial, multicultural group of people who would naturally have very little cause to come together. Debbie and I love that we have so much diversity here at Trent Vineyard, and we long to see more. Whatever your own background, we're thrilled that you are here. In fact, if you're here and you think, you know, I think I feel like the only one of my kind of person here, welcome, we need you. This is the, the richness of the body of Christ to have people who are very different from other people. We have people here who've been following Jesus for 50 years. And we've had, we have people who perhaps walked into a church for the first time tonight. People who've done degrees or masters in theology and people who've never read a single page of the Bible people from different church traditions, as well as from Muslim, Sikh, and other faith backgrounds. We have people who work in the prison and those who've just come out of it. People who work with the homeless and those currently without a home. Those who struggle with substance abuse and addiction. We have Asian people, Afro-Caribbean people, Caucasians, and many more. And people with very diff different political persuasions. People who voted leave and people who voted remain. What is it that holds us together? How can we, with our diverse backgrounds and our diverse perspectives on so many issues, how can we truly journey together? Who is big enough to hold this thing together as one body? Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus. Only if we, that you and I, build our lives on him, we submit to his leadership, will this church hold together as a body. So we've looked at one picture of the church as a body, with Jesus as the head. Now I want to look with you at another picture, which the Apostle Paul uses as he wrote to the Ephesian church, the preserved ruins of which are in modern-day Turkey. And this is what he says in this letter. This is Ephesians chapter 2, 
and we're going to settle in this text. He says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul is saying to this church, this bunch of people who've recently come to faith, you were once a disconnected load of individuals, foreigners, strangers to each other, and without relationship with God. Now, through relationship with Jesus, you are members of God's people. You are citizens of God's kingdom. And more than that, you are members of God's household. And the New Living Translation uses the word family. You are now in the family of God. You have direct access to God as your father. And Paul then develops his analogies further by likening the church to a building, a building which Jesus is joining all the parts together as it's built. And that's what I just want to spend the rest of our time on this evening. A building illustrates a close bond between its parts. They're built together. We're all joined together, brick on brick, into one organic whole. And Paul's talking about us as individuals here being built together into a temple. And he's not the only biblical author who uses the analogy of a building and us as the bricks within it. Uh, Peter, in his first letter, writes this, 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, he's talking about Jesus here, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now I want to illustrate what Paul and Peter are talking about here by likening, if I may, our church to our conservatory. And you'll get why, what I mean, as we go along. So several years ago, about 13 years ago, I think, I built our conservatory with my two sons and a young man in the church called Johnny, who I hired through the summer. And before, we, I bought this wooden structure as a kit and painted a thousand pieces and built all that. But before that went on, we had to build a low wall on two sides and then a 12-foot by 9-foot wall between us and our neighbor. Now, I'd never laid a brick before, so I was very grateful that a builder friend called Simon in the church here came over for a day and he said, this is how you mix mortar and this is how you lay a brick. So we did that together. And, and it starts, so before he came, he said it starts with digging and good old Google told me how to dig a foundation. And uh, the foundation's really important uh, if the building is actually gonna be secure, if it's gonna hold together and stand the test of time. Many of you would know that if you lay a foundation on topsoil, the weight of that wall will press down on the earth and it'll move and you've got to dig down below that to the subsoil. If the foundation you build is weak, if it's not substantial enough, it's not deep enough, it's not wide enough, then the wall at some later date can move. If and when cracks appear in a wall, it's probably not the problem actually with the wall. It's more often gonna be a problem with the foundation. And when Paul talks about the temple, he begins here with the foundation. Ephesians 2, verse 
20. It is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The Apostle Paul says it's important that we get our foundation right. The foundation is the Word of God. The apostles and prophets, essentially, everything that's written in here, he's referring to the Scriptures, and of course that was before the New Testament was written, but the apostles and prophets basically wrote, under God's inspiration, the whole of the Bible. And John Bodley did a great job last Sunday of expanding on that. It's important that we build up a strong foundation, the teaching of the Scriptures, the teaching of Jesus, so that we can have a secure building that will last. For a church to be sound and stable, it must be built on the teaching we find in the Bible. If it isn't, and sadly across some of the church around the world, there is a move away from holding to obedience to this and saying, Do you know, culture's moved on, things have changed, and things that maybe the Bible says aren't right, maybe we can just accommodate that. What happens? Well, you're undoing the foundation. We're standing on the Word of God. When you start to compromise that, cracks will develop in the church. And no amount of patching them up with another program and running around trying to fix things is going to really sort that out. God's word to us has to be the foundation of the church. And then Paul talks here about the cornerstone. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That's what Peter had also referred to earlier. The chief cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone is of critical importance to a building. It's part of the foundation, essentially, but it also holds the building steady. It sets the lines, and it joins the walls together. So the first concrete block that my friend Simon and I laid set the corner of the main wall, like this one pictured here. And having laid the cornerstone, and that's set, that's basically forms a part of the foundation, but it's an immovable part, and everything else in the building ha is referenced from it, is relative to it. So the corner of the house wall and the boundary wall with my neighbor had to be exact, and then every brick that was laid uh, was either exactly in line with it, above it, or behind it, and, or parallel to it, or at exactly 90 degrees to it. And uh, we measured the diagonals and the width and the length and everything else from that one cornerstone. Every building has a cornerstone, and in our lives, we, we also have cornerstones. I'm saying tonight we want to make sure it's Jesus, but, you know, things may change over time that people have, they, they rely on this. What is it that shapes your life and defines the parameters of your life? What is it that holds you together? It may be some particular hobby you're passionate about that you live for, or it might be a relationship, or perhaps it's your children if you have them. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's some life goal which shapes your life and kind of dictates the parameters of it. And you can always tell what your cornerstone is because you're depending on it, you're looking to it, you might find yourself falling back on it when things go wrong in another area. For example, I don't know whether you've ever heard yourself say, even inside your own head, well, it's okay because I've got that to fall back on. I've got, at least I've got a degree. Or it's okay because my children have turned out well. Or because my life's in pretty good shape, I'm financially stable, and so is the economy. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with any of those things, but if your life is built on them, 
and they begin to shake, and any one of those can, then the whole building will shake. God longs for us to set a cornerstone in our lives that cannot be shaken, that is permanent, that is lifelong, in fact, is eternal. And Jesus is the only cornerstone that fits that bill. Once we've established him as the cornerstone in our lives, once we've started a relationship with him, we can begin to build up our life in line with that stone. So let's continue to read there in verse 21. In him, the whole building is joined together. Now, before we started to build, uh, I ordered 600 bricks, and so we had a big pile of bricks. Now, we, the church, are not supposed to be a pile of bricks. What this is saying in the text here is we are being built into a temple. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, it says, you are God's building. Now, what joins bricks together? Of course, mortar. Sand, cement, water, you mix it up. And uh, that mortar starts, if you think about it, it starts at the cornerstone. So you've got your concrete foundation, you've got the one cornerstone set, and then you start the mortar from that point. And from that first trowel full of mortar, there's one continuous layer through the building connecting everything up. Every brick is connected to every other brick. Every brick is, in fact, connected to the cornerstone. Now, if you just want to follow with your imagination a couple of pictures as I paint them, see if this makes sense to you. Supposing when you built your wall, you actually mixed iron filings in with the sand, cement, and mortar. You've made the sand and cement and water. Um, And you mixed a load of iron filings in such that it conducted electricity. Okay, and then... If the cornerstone is electrified, what will happen? Every other brick in the entire building will be energized, will be electrified, because it flows through this continual lattice of mortar. If that doesn't work for you, what about this? Uh, This is a piece of sculpture I would love to make whenever I get time on a smaller scale. But imagine a wall, imagine building a building like the conservatory, and doing so with bricks made of hard jelly. Okay, so you got the mortar just like you would normally, and you build it from the foundation, hard jelly, and you build the entire place, you let the mortar go off, and then you get a lot of boiling water and pour it on top of your building. What's going to happen? All the jelly bricks will melt, will disappear, and what will you be left with? A cornerstone, which is set on the foundation, and a continual and rather beautiful, I think, lattice, showing the way that Jesus, the cornerstone, permeates every part of the building and connects every part to every other part. So in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together. This is a living building, okay? So it's not created once for all but it's rising, it is developing as more people are added. The church isn't where it's supposed to be today. My hope is that there will be somebody or people, a number of people here next Sunday who are not here today. Maybe they're not anywhere, they've never found Jesus and they might find themselves here. It's continually rising, it's continually building. And Jesus holds it all together. Colossians 1.17 says, he, talking about Jesus, is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is what connects every brick to each other. And there's, no, there's almost no sense of individualism if you think about a building. 
those bricks that were once in a pile and not really connected are now in a building. And, you know, there's a, a sense in our culture of individualism where each of us does our own thing, goes our own way. And, and this picture speaks to the individualism in our society today. We're used to thinking in terms of me and my needs and my interests. But like bricks, we're not designed to be Christians by ourselves. We are interdependent. We are being built together. And so we, we, it's not that we lose our individuality, but we become as part of something much bigger than ourselves. And each brick has many bricks above it, which are heavily dependent on it, and many bricks below it that it also depends on. We need each other. We rely on each other. We just let the parts in the body in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about, you know, we, when one part hurts, another part also hurts with it. And nothing is indispensable. We need the whole body of Christ, every brick in the building, for it to fully function. And we need Jesus to hold it all together and help us fulfill that function. To be a home where God, where God lives. It says in, in, here, in him, the whole building's joined together, it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We, the church, are not a physical building, but we're a living people built on a common foundation, joined and held together by a relationship with the cornerstone. And, you know, the church, there is no denying that the church basically is miraculous in its nature, this church and every other church across the world. Its structure, its design, it cannot be explained in human terms. You know, there's a mystery to how it, how it uh, functions. And the mystery is answered in many ways because God is there. God dwells within his people, right in the middle, sustaining, leading, holding things up, connecting, envisioning, strengthening. God dwells here by his spirit. And that's what we want more of. We, we long for more of God in whatever we're doing, whatever church activity we're engaged in, we want God to be there. If you're in a small group, when you meet together, we long for God to turn up in your midst. If you go on the soup run, we long for God to be present with you. Whatever you do as part of this church, it's my prayer that you would know God dwelling with you. We long for people to walk into this building or into any gathering of Trent people and say, wow, what is that feeling? What is that sense I have? You know, surely God is among you is what we actually want people to feel. And many people do feel that when they uh, turn up here. Even conference delegates who come to church, completely non-church related um, conferences, they may be completely unchurched themselves. They will often comment on the atmosphere in this building. They say, this is different to any other conference center we've been in. There's a sense of peace here. What is that? Well, I think they're discerning something of the presence of God. We love it when on a Sunday people come to a service. I've had many, many conversations with people just trying to compute what they're experiencing in here. They say, can't, can't you feel the love in this room? And I'm like, I suppose so. I mean, I've been in this room many hundreds of times, I guess. I guess there's love in this room, but they're like, I'm, this is amazing. I've never experienced an atmosphere like this. Someone said once, I can sense the paranormal in here. They hadn't learned the Christianese word for supernatural presence of God, but they, there was something 
supernatural. It wasn't just natural in here as they came in. They recognized there was a presence of some spirit. And in fact, of course, it was the Holy Spirit. And we love that because we love for God to be experienced, for Jesus to be seen, and for people to turn to him. So this series, as we finish it now, has been called Being Church, and through the various talks, we've celebrated some of the aspects that we love about this church that we're a part of, and we are thrilled with what God has built. We love this church. But a final thought, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, we read this. The builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. The builder, Jesus, has greater honor than the house, this building, the church. This is about him more than it's ever about the church. The series being church is not so much a celebration of our church as a celebration of him. When we get excited about being church, how the church is blessing people, what it's doing, what it's maybe achieving, as we honor the church, let's not forget who it is all about. It is all about Jesus. We are first and foremost, and this is the title of this talk, to be a Jesus-centered church. The Son of God, our Savior Jesus Christ, eclipses everything and everything else, everyone else. Now, as I finish, I know that many people will have seen this video clip I'm about to show you, but I think it's so good it's worth showing again, and then the band's gonna come back and we're gonna worship Jesus a little longer. A well-known African-American pastor with the wonderful name of Shadrach Meshach Lockridge was giving a sermon many years ago, and he was teaching through the Lord's Prayer. And towards the end of his hour-long sermon, as he reached the last line of the Lord's Prayer, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, he said, spontaneously, I guess, whoever heard of a kingdom without a king? Everybody's got a king. Who's your king? If I ask you who's your king, you would ask me who's mine. You got a minute? And then he said this. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. 